Hey, good to see you guys. Okay, so we're continuing looking at this beautiful poem in Isaiah 40 to 55 today, uh, covering 48 to 49, but focusing on 49, 1 to 7, as we just read. Isaiah 49, 1 to 7 is the second of the four servant songs in Isaiah. These are the four uh, greatest prophecies of the Messiah, written hundreds of years before Jesus. So these are in Isaiah 42, 49, 50 and 53. And Isaiah 49, 1-7 describes the experience of the Lord's servant. And it says something new and we ought to take note because it says something incredibly refreshing for us. And um, it's addressed to us in, in one sense. And so I'm, I'm excited about it. I just found, find this passage so encouraging. Three weeks ago, we looked at the first servant song, Isaiah 42. Um, and it was God's description of the servant, the Messiah. Uh, God telling us to take a look at his servant who is eminently worthwhile. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. And so having seen that first servant song now let's look at this one where the servant himself tells us about his experience um, as a servant <clears throat> and he speaks to the distant nations um, those he's commissioned to bring light to and of course that includes us <clears throat> so in this whole section Isaiah 49 1 to 7 the servant tells us certain things about his experience. Uh, four points, and I have them here, and I love this artwork which captures a lot of what's being said. The servant called, verse one, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. The servant calls on the whole world to hear him. Um, it concerns everyone, the whole world, what he's about to say. And the servant says, the Lord called me before I was born. While in my mother's womb, he spoke my name. We've heard this kind of thing said about Israel in general, so far in Isaiah, particularly Isaiah chapter 43 that we looked at two weeks ago. And now the servant says it about himself. Remember when Jacob uh, and his twin brother Esau were in their mother's womb and the angel of the Lord came to Rebekah, their mother, and said, you have two nations in your womb and the older will serve the younger. And Jacob ends up being the younger and the father of Israel. <clears throat> so in the womb, the boy Jacob already had a calling on his life. He already had a purpose. The Lord called Jacob in the womb and then Israel coming from Jacob. Likewise, Jesus, the angel came to Joseph before Jesus was born and said, Mary will have a son conceived by the Holy Spirit and you shall give him the name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. So Jesus calling before his birth is like Israel's calling 
as a nation. And in one sense, the servant song refers to Israel as a whole. In fact, in verse 3, God says, you are my servant, Israel. But in another sense, verse 6 of Isaiah 49, the servant is an individual within Israel called to restore Israel back to God. So as we said three weeks ago, we have to see that this servant ultimately is the Messiah, Jesus. Do you remember that hourglass uh, illustration? In one sense, the servant is Israel as a whole, but then it narrows down to an individual, the Messiah, Jesus. And then in the New Testament, it broadens out again um, to include the apostles and those who carry on the ministry of the servant um, in Jesus' name. So, for example, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says that when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me in, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul uses the same servant passage, Isaiah 49, to describe how he has been called as an apostle. And those of us who are in Christ, do we have a purpose? Did God know us while we were still in the womb? And did he call us by name? Yes. Uh, Ephesians 1 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons in Christ Jesus. Um, And there are two concepts here. God calls us and God knows us by name. Um, How does God know your name? And does he call you? And does he wish to have a relationship with you? And does he have a purpose for you? Yes. Yes. And as Christians, that's our message. And that's Jesus' message. God knows you by name. God knew Ali by name. And he called her. And the Christian message is, What do you want to do with God's call of you? Because he knows you and calls you by name. And the Christian message is not so much we have to do this and we have to do that and we have to sacrifice. The Christian message is how will you respond to God's call of your name? That he wants to know you and has a purpose for you. So that's the first thing. God called the servant by name in his mother's womb. Secondly, the servant commissioned. In verse 2, he tells us how he's been prepared for his great work. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Here the servant describes four aspects of his commissioning. Firstly, God made my mouth like a sharpened sword. The expression, a sharp sword, is used frequently in the Old Testament. Sometimes a sword is described as two-mouthed, meaning 
two-edged. Some swords in the ancient world uh, were sharp on one side but not on the other, a bit like the moon-shaped swords that came later in history. Other swords that were exceptionally sharp are described as a two-mouthed sword, meaning they cut both ways. And here he says, the Lord has made my mouth like a very sharp sword. <laughs> what does it mean? Well, Isaiah chapter 11 refers to the Messiah and we're told in verse 4, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With, his breath, with the breath of, breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. So Isaiah 11 says the Messiah will strike the earth with the rod of his, of his mouth. <coughs> Obviously, this is referring to the Messiah's words. He's not a military figure who will use military weapons. This is talking about his words. He strikes the earth with the rod of his mouth. That is, um, his mouth does the job, not the rod. <laughs> uh, so the servant's work is to be a work done through his words. And those words will be a formidable weapon, a sharp sword. Revelation 1.16 uses a similar image to refer to Jesus. In his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. Referring to the words of Jesus, the imagery isn't of Jesus going around hacking up people with a, a literal sword. It's saying Jesus' words are like a double-edged sword. And it's the word that is the reality and not the sword. Now, this description of the word of the servant is very similar to the word of the Lord himself. So, for example, Jeremiah 23, verse 9, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? So, the word of the servant has characteristics that in indicate that it is the word of God himself. So, the sharp sword of God's word is in the mouth of his servant and it has tremendous power just one observation here um, is that this is how God strikes our hearts and we may think diamonds are tough but there's nothing tougher than the human heart and it's only this sharp sword of God's word that can penetrate the human heart and this is the word of a servant Secondly, the servant says he's been made into a polished arrow. Instead of just his mouth being sharpened, uh, the servant himself is a polished, polished arrow. A polished arrow is an arrow that's been cleaned and sharpened. Its purpose is to pierce the heart, according to Psalm 45 verse 6. The idea is of inflicting wounds on people. Though in this context, the servant's ministry is a wholesome ministry. Therefore, these are wholesome wounds, wounds that help people. The servant has been made like a polished arrow. Uh, and I think from the parallelism here, it refers again to his incisive speech. His speech goes right to the mark and penetrates the human heart, just like God's word. The third aspect of the servant's commissioning is that he's been hidden in the shadow of God's hand. This is the servant saying, God has protected me, he's kept me safe, he's hidden me 
while he's prepared me for my role. And the fourth aspect is like that, um, verse 2, is that he's been concealed in the quiver. Warriors put swords and arrows in sheaths and quivers, ready for the time when they want to use the sword or the arrow. So the point here is that at the fullness of time, God draws out his sword or puts his arrow to the bow. It's a picture of protection being hidden and concealed, ready for the time when God will bring forth his weapon, the servant, at the appointed time. So we can think of this in terms of God's preparation of Israel. Jacob prepared even in the womb and throughout his life and his 12 sons becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. And the whole of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are about the preparation for Israel ready to enter the promised land and be a light to the nations. Uh, So this is talking about Israel at one level, but preeminently this is about Jesus. Remember his hidden years from birth, from the womb and then birth and then till he was 30. We know little about those years. Jesus was, in a sense, hidden. He was being prepared from the womb, from the matrix of his mother, as it were. And we need to include Mary in his preparation, of course, as his mother. And that's kind of implied in the language here. uh, That she helped prepare Jesus for what he would ultimately do. But he was prepared by God throughout his childhood until the age of 30 and then unleashed on the world, fired as a polished arrow into the world at his baptism and public ministry. And this also applies to God preparing and protecting followers of Jesus for our mission. Sometimes God will hide us and he will polish us so that we can be an effective arrow um, This doesn't mean that God shoots us all of the time. It's in God's timing. Timing is the key here. It's when we're ready and he will keep us hidden in a quiver until we're ready to come out and we're highly polished and then we can be effective arrows straight to the target of where God is shooting us. And I had this sense when I came to... Winmalee Night Church and became the pastor of, of that and then Soma coming out of that, that God was finally firing me <laughs> like an arrow and having been prepared and hidden, as it were, in Byron Bay as a handyman for all those years. Uh, and it was quite interesting. And this week I got to share with my son, Zach, who's a pastor who's going through a really, really tough time. And I was able to tell him about Isaiah 49. That I think he's being prepared and polished by God, ready to be unleashed and given more responsibility. And this is so, so encouraging, this, this whole concept. So God calls his servant by name while he's in the womb. And that's just wonderful, just wonderful. And then takes care of his servant through patience in protecting and preparing and sharpening him, ready for the time when he'll be unleashed on the world. 
And the servant concludes this section on his commissioning in verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. This is so cool when you really think this through what's being said. See, if God is sovereign and he is the master and God has a servant, then the perfect master will ensure that the servant performs correctly um, even though that servant isn't perfect, I mean, there's no point in having a, a servant who's supposed to sweep the floors and he doesn't sweep the floors, or a servant who's supposed to go and do the shopping, but he doesn't bring home the stuff that he was supposed to buy. So a perfect master will ensure that his servant is properly trained and properly equipped and properly obedient and properly performs. In other words, that's the master's job, not the servant's job, right? And whatever the servant is like, the master, the perfect master, can mould the servant into what he wants so that that servant is ready to do what that servant is called to do. So that the performance of that servant will glorify the master, as it says here in verse 3, will display the splendor of God. Because people won't look at the servant and say, wow, look at that servant, they're amazing. Give glory to that servant. No, they, they'll give glory to the master who has prepared and supported that servant and at the right time has fired that arrow. So the responsibility is with God ultimately, and that just takes a lot of pressure off us as servants. Um, and that's why the glory goes back to God, not to us. This leads us to the third feature of the servant, <coughs> the servant comforted. <coughs> Verse 4, But I said, I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. As the servant reflects on his high calling and mission, he considers that his work is a failure. Like the prophets Elijah and Jeremiah, his ministry seems to be of no purpose. And so the servant ex expresses his thoughts and says, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. The servant's ministry involves toil, labour and growing weary. And in the midst of that, it seems like there's no fruit. And so the thought comes to the servant, it's useless. And it's not the work per se that exhausts the servant, but the feeling that it's all for nothing. That's what discourages the servant. And I think for us, when we're engaged in Christian service, it's not the hard work that knocks us out. If we think that the work, the ministry, is very worthwhile and bearing fruit, then we don't mind the hard work. It's when the hard work seems to be getting nowhere, that's when it's really crushing. The Rugby World Cup is happening in September in France. It's amazing to see a rugby final at the end. Both teams come off the pitch with all kinds of bruises and cuts and limping. 
It was a hard-fought match. But the team that trudges off the field looking dejected is the team that lost. While the other team marches off the field, (laughs) yes, with cuts, bruises, one eye half shut because of the swelling, blood streaming down, maybe even carried off the field, but with huge grins on their faces. Like the attitude when you're coming off when you've won is utterly different than when you're coming off when you feel that your labour was in vain. And in my experience of Christian service, it's mostly not the hard work that troubles us. It's when the hard work seems to be a waste of time. What does 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 say? Paul says, I think channeling Isaiah 49. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. It's the sense that it's in vain (laughs) that bothers us. It's the fact that it seems to be useless that discourages us. And 1 Corinthians 15 58 encourages us to see that our work done in the Lord is never, never in vain. Whether we can see the results or not, it's not in vain. Now, there may be people that you've loved and reached out to in mission or ministry, and there may be people that you work with, that you've poured your life into, and it may feel like a failure. We tried to plant a congregation in Penrith, which at one level came to nothing. And those of you who were involved in that might still feel a bit of a sense of what was the point of that? Or your gospel community fell apart. Or that person that you were sharing Jesus with over so long and you had loved so much ended up turning away from Christ. Or your mission just seems to bear no fruit. And you feel an emptiness about that. And maybe there's the temptation to become cynical that God has led you up the garden path. And there's that feeling that the effort you put in is emptiness and pointlessness. 1 Corinthians 15.58 tells us that work done in the name of Jesus is never in vain. And if you look at the words of the servant here in verse 4, he says... I've spent my strength for nothing at all. He actually thought that it was all for nothing at one point. Now, this is the servant's initial thought. He was despondent about his ministry. The thought crossed his mind. But as soon as he says it, there's another thought that comes in. And it's the word yet. And in the Hebrew, this word yet is very strong. Yet surely. In other words, when these ideas and thoughts crossed the servant's mind that his ministry was of no value, when that temptation came to him, he remembers verse 4, Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. The servant, though tempted along these lines, nonetheless expresses confidence that his reward is is with God and my reward here in this context really means the results of his labor that's in the hands of God 
he says. God will achieve his purposes. He will achieve his purposes through his servant. Uh, And so the servant is comforted. Now, this is a word to Israel, despondent in exile, feeling like a failure. And this is a word to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, but he could have been quoting Psalm 49, uh, Isaiah 49. Similar idea. Um, and so this is a word to Jesus and it's a word to us as well. The ministry of those who are servants, if it's done in the name of the Lord, is never in vain. So the servant is comforted in the knowledge that his destiny, his future, his ministry is in God's hands. And we might think, oh, my ministry is in vain. But it's not the servant's job to ensure that the ministry is successful. It's the master's job to ensure that the servant is properly equipped, properly supported, so that the servant's work will not be in vain and that the servant will achieve what the master has given the servant to do. And the assurance is, yes, that is the case. God will achieve his purposes through us so that the master will be glorified and not us. So we come fourthly and finally to something astonishing. The servant is compelled and sent further afield. The servant is tempted to be discouraged. So what does God do? He says to the servant, your ministry is going to be bigger. (laughs) It's going to be wider. Uh, That's the reverse of what we'd expect. If you felt like an area of your ministry was useless, going nowhere, you'd likely cut it off and put your energy somewhere else. And that might be the right thing to do and sometimes is. But what's interesting here is when the servant is tempted to think his ministry is not effective, then God opens it up and and increases his work rather than decreasing it. Verse 5, Now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord and my God has given me strength. He says, the Lord says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you to be a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Wow. Now we saw in Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 to 9, the first servant song, that the servant's ministry was to bring justice to the nations. So the servant here is reminded of that initial calling um, and this is where the expansion comes. He's called to be a light to the nations, verse 6, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Israel was called to be a light to the nations, but here the servant fulfills the role of Israel on behalf of Israel. So in the context of being tempted and, and tested, First, the servant is comforted that his ministry rests with the Lord. And then at that point, God restates that he's going to bring salvation to the whole world through his servant. 
And as I've said, the servant passages are used and applied to Jesus in the New Testament. But in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, Paul and Barnabas are talking to Jews at Persinian Antioch. And we're told, Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, answered the Jews boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Quoting Isaiah 49. Very interesting. Uh, Isaiah 49 is a passage speaking about Israel. It becomes narrowed down to Jesus himself. But here Paul says, Um, that this text from Isaiah is a word to Paul and Barnabas as apostles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles, the nations, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So here Paul and Barnabas as apostles spreading the gospel (coughs) to the nations are fulfilling the words which were addressed to the servant. And so this applies to Jesus himself who is a light to the nation, but also those engaged in this ministry of bringing the gospel to the world. Who is the servant? The servant is those who proclaim the gospel to the world, the apostles firstly, but then we as the church also are the servant. And the church has had this huge tradition of sending missionaries to the ends of the earth. And that's not a bad note on which to end this talk. Because it may bring home to us that the Lord has much, much more that he wants us to do than we first thought. He wants us to be involved in bringing God's salvation to the ends of the earth, including the ends of our street and the ends of the Blue Mountains. If we don't have that universal view of the servant's ministry, then we've missed the overarching point. And if there isn't a concern among Christ's servants, that the gospel ought to reach the ends of the earth, then there's something seriously wrong. Because God's purposes for his servant reach to the distant nations. And we're told, verse 6, it is too small a thing for you to simply restore the tribes of Jacob. I've sent you to be a light to the nations. So we've talked about the calling of the servant. He was called by name from the womb. We've talked about him being commissioned and prepared and made ready and unleashed on the world and comforted in the context of the ministry being difficult and seeming like a failure. And then that the servant is then compelled to be involved in a ministry on a wider front. And that means God may be leading you or I to see ourselves as called from the womb Named, he called us by name, commissioned, prepared, polished, um, hidden away until the correct time and being sent to speak his word. And comforted when that's difficult, but compelled to see that our role is to be part of this big, big, big vision of the gospel going to every corner of the globe. And so we're to throw ourselves perhaps more fully into the ministry of the gospel 
And this may mean that we go somewhere else and we go to another country. We go literally to the ends of the world or it may mean that we go to the ends of our street or as I've said, or that we really are more deeply committed to everyone here in the mountains hearing the gospel. Recently, uh, we've read several missionary newsletters that Glenda and I, and it's nearing the end of the financial year. And, and they all say, we could do so much more if we had more funds. <laughs> and you may not feel that you can speak the gospel. Um, that's not your gift. Not easy for you. That's not where Jesus is firing you exactly, although we all have a part in that. But you may be called to give money. And that is just so, so, so super, super involved, important in this whole thing. Money is needed to support this worldwide vision. Some Christians have real reservations with mission. Um, perhaps they haven't understood the implications of being the servant of the Lord. And a servant, as I've said three weeks ago, is somebody at the disposal of their Lord. So this gets back to pretty basic issues. Are we truly at the disposal of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if we're a servant in this secondary sense, and if the word of Isaiah 49, 1-7 applies to us, then implicit in our calling is a commitment to the gospel going everywhere. And if the Lord makes you pack your bags and go, so be it. But that's not a special calling, a special deal. That's inherent in everybody's calling as a Christian, that we're committed to be involved somehow or other, depending on our gifts, in this vision. So what can we say about the servant? He's not only called by name from his mother's womb, he was also conscious that he was called and conscious that he was commissioned and prepared and given what he needed. And we need to be conscious of that too. He was conscious that he was being made into a polished arrow to speak God's word, the sharpened sword. A servant who would be tempted to think he was a failure, but encouraged by the fact that the results are with God. And even in that moment of temptation to see that God had huge, huge things in store for his servant. A ministry to bring the light of God to the whole world. I wonder what Jesus would say to us if he was here today and he is here today speaking right now. Um, would, what would he say to us about him being our Lord and we are his servants and he is equipping us? and firing us out for his purposes. But he's protecting, preparing, supporting us in that. And all glory will go to him. Amen.